This podcast is brought to you by Burl Audio. Get it right the first time. Learn more at burlaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. For this episode, we have something different for you. This is a roundtable discussion with Tony Visconti, Chris Kimsey, Martin Tareff, George Murphy, and Andy Cook, recorded in England at Kingston University's Visconti Studios. They discuss the recording and production practices that shaped the iconic records of the past, the abuse of tape, and the slow process of recording and editing analog media. Talking us through some of their experiences in the studio with David Bowie and the Rolling Stones, Tony and Chris reveal some of their own creative approaches to tape-based production. Enjoy! My name is Isabella van Elfren. I work at Kingston University, where I'm the director of the Visconti Studio, which is an analog and digital hybrid studio that we set up with Tony Visconti. And with me is my colleague, Leah. Hi, uh, my name is Leah Cardos. I'm a researcher and a musician, and I work at Kingston University. And I'm interested in creativity in large format studios, uh, including analog as well. Hi, I'm Tony Visconti. And I'm a record producer for a very long time, recording engineer, musician, and uh, I am very involved with the Visconti studio in Kingston University. (laughs) But anyway, that's me. That's who I am. Hi, my name is Chris Kimsey. Um, I'm a record producer, recording engineer, and 40 years of recording and producing incredible music. I started at Olympic Studios in London, and I'm actually back there now resurrecting and building a new studio. And it was Tony that introduced me to Kingston. Um, The facility there is excellent. And we had a wonderful week of recording 24-track analog, which was a mind-blower for the students and for myself, because I hadn't recorded on analog for maybe a couple of years. So it was wonderful to get back to it. Um, Looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts about it. Hi, I'm uh, Andy Cook. I'm a recording engineer based out of a studio in London called British Grove. Uh, I've been recording for about 15 years in all kinds of uh, methods and facilities, uh, recording in sheds and warehouses and live gigs uh, to high-end recording studios. My name is Martin Tareff and I'm also a songwriter and record producer and um, musician. I've been making records for quite a long time as well. Um, I started in the late 80s when uh, really the kind of uh, just in the beginning when digital was appearing in various uh, incarnations in, in, in recording. But I started analog and have gone through that whole transition and I also own uh, uh, two studios here, uh, East Coast and Canceltown. We're in East Coast right now, and I, uh, I've also just become a partner in uh, uh, an amazing studio in Stockholm called Atlantis, which was the old Metronome Studios, which is uh, uh, really exciting. So, and I have a small studio in New York. So I've, I do a lot, a lot of recording, and uh, um, and I do use analog still. <laughs> Uh, my name's George Murphy. I am a sound engineer and producer based at the wonderful East Coast Studios in London. Well, I'm currently the head engineer for, uh, for, this, for this wonderful place that uh, allows me to spend lots of time playing with old analog gear and 
and lots of new fancy digital gear as well. Um, I've been based here for about eight years ago when I started here as an assistant. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a great eight years. Great. Brilliant. Um, so we wanted first to talk a little bit about um, the secrets of analog and why it is so different um, than digital. So Leah, would you like to? Yeah. Yes. Um, so my first question is about uh, analog um, being an iconic type of presence in the studio, sort of in popular culture, for better or worse, we associate it, um, analog processes and analog equipment with the prestige and the iconic sounds of the past, particularly that rich period during the late 60s, early to mid 70s, when technology and experimentation were driving production aesthetics in really fun directions. My first, my first question is really like, is it true? Does analog give people a way to accessing that iconic sound? Is analog equipment or processes or the medium itself part of the quote-unquote secret? Or can digital do it all these days? You know, I, I started analog recording in 1967 and spent a good sort of uh, 10 years before I saw the first piece of digital equipment, which was the Eventide Harmonizer 910. So I worked with... Uh, analog daily. I owned a recording studio. I had two 24-track machines in tandem. And uh, anytime I had a hit record, I just threw the money back into, um, into buying more equipment because otherwise I'd pay a lot of income tax. So my equipment just like just grew and was literally spilling out of the doors of the studio, going into the back room. And when we needed it, we it came back in. <laughs> so the analog chain is is not only the tape, obviously. The tape is the the last end of the chain. It uh, begins with a super great microphone and uh, condenser mics were always the rule of the day. And then, of course, we have our favorite ribbons and all that. But the list is very long. If you want secrets, each, each and every one of us has our own preferences and our own secrets. Some microphones, other people say are wonderful, like the C12. I always hated it. I, I, so you're going to say you love it. And that's, that's your secret and that's my secret. But uh, the, the part that we, I think we're going to really concentrate on is what tape does to the sound. Yeah, because we're still yeah. using the analog chain, the front end, but the back end now is digital and yeah. almost... 99% of the world, uh, studio world. So, like, tape is a charming thing. It, it's a beast. Uh, it needs taming. Uh, you have to start out from a good place where you work in a studio, such as the one that Andy works in, where you have daily maintenance on a tape machine mm. and, and constant examining the heads, the circuitry, Listen for, uh, you know, yeah. make sure there's no, no noise crept into each channel, each module. So you, if you love tape, you have to know this stuff to make the tape work for you. And once, tape, once a tape machine is lined up in a pristine way, then you can proceed to abuse it. <laughs> and it's the abuse that makes it sound wonderful. <laughs> and that is basically saturation you know, saturating mm -hmm. the tape. How much do you do that? There, to this day, there is no meter that tells you how much you are saturating the tape. You got to use these, this one and this one. To, well, this one's better for me. <laughs> but you have, to use, you have to use these to tell you what the saturation is and how much of it you want. And how, you know, thing, you have to know things like on 16 track, your kick drum plays back at the same volume 
that you recorded it at. But on 24 track, it doesn't. It comes back like a wee little sound, you know. Another secret of mine is I recorded the kick drum on two tracks and uh, in the old days. And so we finally got some weight back, you know. When I first got a 24-track machine, I loved the, the extra tracks because you could be more creative and you didn't have to bounce down as much. But the drums didn't sound as good as they did on 16-track, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. All these things are kind of arcane knowledge, and each of us here knows what that is, and, you know, through experimentation... Digital is what goes in comes out. You know, it's, it, it's not really difficult to understand how digital works. You don't have to know how it works, but people get instant gratification when they use digital these days. Yeah. You are not guaranteed instant gratification when you work on analog. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I support all those things that Tony has said, obviously. I think there's a, a, a lot to learn from working with the whole analog chain with signal-to-noise ratios, even within the console, mic pre's, getting the right mic pre level, which when you get into digital, you don't have to worry about that so much. You can kind of fix it later. Well, I don't think you can fix it later, but um, it's not so imperative as it is in the analogue world where you really have to be on the ball and, and get everything set well in advance. Yeah, it's wonderful to have the tape compression the thing is about analog and digital. Digital, it just makes up the sound. Analog is the purest form of reproduction, I feel, of sound in its inherent way of what it is, the magnetic tape. Can you always hear that difference? I can definitely hear a difference or I feel a difference that's if I'm working on something that's mm. been recorded totally in digital. I mm -hmm. get ear fatigue after about three hours, four hours. Uh -huh. I have to step out. If I'm working on something that's been recorded on analog, even, strangely, even if it's been recorded on analog and then dumped into Pro Tools, uh -huh. um, I don't get that fatigue as much. And also EQing from a digital source as opposed to an analog source. EQing on a digital source, uh, it can be quite ugly. Um, it's sort of smooth. It's uh, not as warm. Yeah, it's not as smooth as EQing something from an analog source where you could really screw the gain right up yeah. and you're more likely to just get more noise, but uh, you won't get a horrible digital um, crap out sound. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to just um, ask you both in response to that. Um, these secrets uh, of these, you know, iconic sounds, are they... Were they born from necessity? Like, was it you guys pushing the technology beyond its limits in order to make it malfunction or to saturate or to see how it can go? And that bending of the technology, because uh, it strikes me that analog gives you a little bit more plasticity in that way. You can kind of push it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I don't think there's secrets. It was just what we were choosing to, as Tony said, push the tape to the limit and see what would come back. And yeah. so all of a sudden we had a, a, another media that we could play with, apart from the microphones and the consoles and everything else, um, that our, our main recording source or what was it was going to end up on was another media that you could shape um, and change mm -hmm. things on. Uh, and then also Dolby was a great thing with tape as well. You could, uh, that was another great introduction because you know, tape was inherently noisy and it wasn't that much fun running at 30 IPS because you get through a reel of tape very quickly. So 15 IPS was, uh, was my preferred speed. But with Dolby SR, 
was one of the most beautiful sounds I've ever heard. I agree that the the thing we found out we could do with uh, analog tape, which is, by the way, I forgot to include in my little speech there that it sounds glorious. It's smoother. We know that digital is a series of uh, zeros and ones, and analog is a smooth curve. And that smooth curve of, of sound is detectable by any ear, whether you're an engineer or a person who has a large record collection, you know. People know the difference, and, and it's something like if you have a great French meal, you don't know what the hell they put in the, the pepper and salt, how much they put in. <laughs> it just tastes great, you know. And that's, how, that's what I can analog is to, to digital. Uh, you know, the other thing we learned from the Beatles right early on was you can get these strange sounds like phasing and flanging, mm -hmm. and that, to my ears, I have never heard a digital... Uh, equivalent to what you can, the way you can do that with analog tape, because with analog, when you do phasing, you actually, you know, it's, I won't go into the three machine setup, but once you get to the, when the two playheads start to hit each other, you get that sound where you're going into outer space or you're being sucked into a jet plane. And you can go right beyond that. You can actually go into the future which you can't do in digital. You know, you go, here's, where's we're listening now? Then you hit that point and you suddenly... So this thing, I have never heard a box that does it that well that we, we did it when you had like three people had to be holding a knob and, and like listening in the studio while you were doing these phasing and flanging effects. And there were more than one way to do it. Like you did it differently with a Studer machine than you did it with a, an MCI machine because Studer, you could play back the record head and you could play back the playback head at the same time, which was... And it was never the same twice, was it? It, it was fantastic, <laughs> you know, but, but it was just fantastic. We can't do that. Like digitally, you have some amazing special effects, but the analog sound and the way we did it in the analog way, if you hear Strawberry Fields Forever or Ichiku Park, I have not heard phasing or flanging that good ever since. I mean, you know, unless you hit, you do it on tape. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like, a part of that is like, it's the kind of 100% predictability of digital, which like, you know, mm -hmm. if you record on a tape, and I remember, you know, I, I traveled quite a lot and kind of mixed often in New York and you have to kind of take the tape with you and it will be played back on a different machine than, than the one you kind of recorded on and it will always sound, you know, you never knew exactly how it was going to sound and that led to reacting in the studio to the new setup. It was a new console, the new tape machine. You know, maybe it was a good alignment, maybe it wasn't, maybe you were in a hurry, maybe you weren't, and kind of, and and in all the, that kind of uncertainty, like mistakes happened that sometimes became, you know, beautiful, glorious uh, experiments that mm -hmm. kind of you could never recreate. And uh, and that never really happens uh, in, in digital, because obviously kind of you, you set your settings and then you do it and then it will come back, you know, exactly what, the way you did it. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a difference as well. Personally, what I, I've always found um, with analog uh, and going into what you're saying about pure aesthetics of the sound, people always need to remember, like, having a tape machine and being in a studio of a tape machine, it's not going to make you sound like the Rolling yeah. Stones. You need to be the Rolling Stones. And you, you need people like Chris and Tony who knew how to abuse and get these effects and these sounds, for, maybe through accidents or, or pre-planned experiments. I know where I work at British Grove, it's, it's a bit of a playground for legendary gear. But, you know, all this gear does is it's just a magnifying glass. If, if you mm -hmm. sound bad at home, it's going to make 
it very much apparent that you sound bad in this recording studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that, that's any medium. That's any medium. It's part of the cell, isn't it? It's like, you know, with these plugins now that are emulating analog, they're kind of selling this promise of like, you in your home studio with your cheap microphone, if you use our UAD Luna door, uh, you're going to sound like Amy Winehouse on Back to Black or something. Um, so they are kind of selling this old way of doing things and setting up this idea that the old way is the best way and it's the authentic way. Um, when really it's about knowledge, right? It's about knowing how to drive the equipment. And it's analog tape as well. Yeah, it's the actual material. The the thing about recording with analog is when you listen back to your take, you're just in amazement of what you've captured because, well, first of all, you have to wait for the tape to rewind, so there's at least a a four-minute blast before you hear it again. But when you do hear that take, you're in another world. In digital, you're in the same world all the time. And I think your brain doesn't have time to separate from the performance to what you're listening. And when you listen back to digital, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's all right. But tape, it's like, wow, it kind of magnifies the feeling that you've captured on tape somehow. Yeah. Which I think the fact that happens is that the way we feel and listen to music is not ones and zeros. It's waveform and Mm. magnetic tape is a lot softer in collecting that and documenting that than, than digital. Um, well, I'm, I made a lovely album with Andy and we, we recorded it, the backing tracks on uh, analog. And uh, the, it was a treat for the whole band. What Chris just said about the rewind, it, it's an agonizingly long wait for people who are used to digital. My yeah. God, it, it's a whole 30 seconds you know, <laughs> before you can hear the playback. But you know what I, I loved is like with analog tape, by the time you did rewind it, the band, it would give the band time to walk into the room. And so they didn't really have to wait. By the time they made it into the control room or went to the loo or something, like you were ready to play back that, um, that take, which gave you time to think, you know, time to, like Chris said, time to like ruminate about it and, and, uh, and hear the difference. Like when, you, when you're when a guitar player or a bass player and you're wearing headphones, you're just listening to the drum kit and all that. And everyone comes in and hears what everyone else has been contributing to it, which is quite a wonderful experience. And it's more amplified with analog recording when you have that. It's more communal. And, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, it's smoother. Like we all, all grew up listening to analog recordings and we have it in our DNA, how nice and smooth that, that all sounds, you know. By the way, Chris made a point, could I, I would just like to say his, his preference is 15. Yeah. My, that, that's my preference. Now. That's my preference too, because when you record at 30, 30 is so clean. It, it, it sounds a little digital. You know, you, I cannot saturate tape at 30 IPS. It, it only seems to happen at 15 for me. I can hear it at 15. Yeah, the bass is better at 15. For, the bass is better, exactly. Yeah. You get a little yeah, bump there and all that. And yeah. um, so the, these are things you, you learn, as uh, Leah raised, uh, over experimentation over the years. Because like when 30 came in, everyone's recording at 30, and I go, yeah, yeah, 30. And maybe, you know, the highs are a little bit better. That really didn't add to the, <laughs> the recording. It didn't add much. And it, it's better you get a, a, a multi-track tape, you'll get six takes of the song on it easily. You might squeeze a seventh. 30 IPS, three takes, 
And you can't really stack, which I've done many an album where you had a stack to the ceiling of 30 IPS tapes, like 14, 15, 16 tapes for the whole wow. album, which was yeah. a 30 minute, you know, 40 minute album. I was actually going to pick up on that, Tony, the, um, the space that analog creates in the studio, because I noticed that with those sessions, Chris, how much time was injected into the day, because we were changing reels, we were stopping for edits, we were um, rewinding the tape. But there was a lot of kind of sitting down and chilling out, and it felt like there was room to breathe and be creative and talk about the music and uh, and not get tired. There was it wasn't exhausting, even though we were working all day until late at night. It felt manageable. <laughs> Well, we were working all day and all night, but the the musicians weren't working. <laughs> That's true. That's the good thing, I think, for, for the musicians is that, you know, they're not, in, in the digital world, it's like, okay, next take, next take, next take, do it again, and it goes mm. on and on like that. Mm. Um, but in the analogue world, as Tony said, you know, there's time to reflect and there's time to think and listen. When you record on analogue, you're listening to the music with your ears. You're not yeah. looking at a screen and looking at waveform. Um, yeah. Um, because people are not really, they think they're listening, but they're not. They're looking at a waveform and thinking about, oh, is that in sync with that? Yeah. I think that goes all the way to the mix stage, actually, because I've noticed one thing that's changed for me as a producer a lot is that I don't go to mixes anymore. I kind of, I've totally lost interest in it because... Before, you'd go to mix with someone that was generally better at mixing than you, you were yourself, you know. So you go and mix with, uh, I don't know, Michael Brower or someone, and uh, and then you put the tape on. And that and first of all, you know, like the whole waiting whilst you're rewinding means like when you mix analog, you rarely loop things or go, and kind of focus in on only one little 10-second segment. You kind of rewind the tape and then you listen to the song again. And then you try to remember all the little things you wanted to adjust that first time you heard it. And, and by the time you listened to it six or seven times, you kind of forgotten the things that weren't that important. And, uh, and you kind of like, and you fixed or, or, or made good everything that really was important. And there's always that dialogue when you rewind the tape. I tried to tell the mix engineer everything. I want him to kind of focus on the next pass. And with digital, you know, you're in a room with someone and they're totally in their world, just much like, you know, like, you're in your own world on the phone nowadays, you know, and, mm. and, and generally kind of you, you mix in sections. So now we're going to mix the chorus and it's on loop and it goes around, the music never stops and kind of, it's, uh, it's exhausting. So I kind of, so if I use um, other people to mix now, I generally prefer sending it, getting it back, being able to listen to it in my own time and then kind of compiling my list of comments and sending them back. It's a different process than it used to be when it was actually kind of, the mix was also kind of an event. You know, now, now the event for me is the actual making of the record and then the mix is somewhat kind of become akin to mastering back in the day <laughs> or something. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, that's so interesting. That's uh, changed for me. There's also, I mean, um, I don't have experience like you guys to draw from, but we did teach analog for the first time at Kingston this last year. And one thing that was really apparent was that these students who are all digital natives, for want of a better term, um, were not prepared for being rehearsed in the studio. They, they, they didn't know their stuff and they sort of thought that they could just bring their band to the studio and just see what happens and write the song in the studio and, of course, it doesn't work that way. And I think it was a big shock for them to realise 
that at least if you're going to be jamming, you've got to be tight because you can't edit something that's not tight. And if you haven't rehearsed this prog rock masterpiece that you're working on and you can't play it from beginning to end, get used to punching in. And there's this whole kind of vocabulary and way of thinking about their own musicianship was transformative for them because of the medium, because it forced them to work a certain way. I would argue maybe even a more musical way. You know, it, yeah. it asked them to be better musicians. Young musicians and analogue and digital, uh, a young band coming into the studio, the first thing they'll probably ask you is, um, do you know, yeah, have you got a click track? You had to record the click track. We had click tracks. I actually remember that transition. Like, yeah. f for a moment, you didn't always have click tracks. And then all of a sudden, I think that was the first kind of major... Uh, that I can remember since I started recording, that you know, it totally changed everything because when people started recording to click and then combined with kind of syncing up two machines in the 80s, like early 90s, you know, when I really kind of started making records and stuff, then, you know, I remember some producers would be kind of comparing, you know, the, the drummer's bass drum with the click and if anything flanged a little bit, you know, they'd be kind of like, you know, back, kind of, uh, you know, do another overdub, you know. and Early dance music made us, you know, the demands to play to a click were dictated by people had to be like dance and tempo and all that. And mm. they were amazing yeah. drummers, like Chris said, who could actually hold a tempo from for five minutes. You know, uh, Dennis, yeah, Davis, yeah. Dennis Davis, who worked with David Bowie, was like that. He His timekeeping was impeccable. But but later with disco music, drummers had to start playing to click tracks, which you had to record on tape. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, like you just got a metronome, something. I mean, there was no like zero. There was no markers like there are in the digital world. But but then then no. records just had to be tighter than ever. You know, but the drums and bass had to be locked down. You know, locked in rather. My reference there was going to be working on so many Stones albums. Um, the first one that I recorded, engineered completely was some girls. The, the Rolling Stones have never used the click track. No. Um, you no. don't need it with Charlie. The title track, Some Girls, was actually, it was pretty much, I think, one or two takes, but it was 17 minutes long because Mick had so many verses about so many different girls. Um, the, the bridge only came up like, the bridge only came up twice in the whole recording. Um, and after 17 minutes of it, we listened back to it. And Mick said to me, he said, great, okay, edit it down to, you know, like four and a half minutes. So I said, well, what verses do you want? He said, I don't care, you choose. So um, there I was editing the 16-track tape. And I was absolutely amazed that I could take a verse from like eight minutes, put it into yeah. two minutes. I could move verses around to where I wanted to from this 17-minute performance and the tempo was solid all the way. The situation, um, recording with drummers who weren't playing with clicks, then the drummer would start playing. He, his dynamic would change. He was kind of fighting against the click um, with his mm -hmm. dynamic and I would try to avoid clicks as much as possible. But Tony's completely right. When the whole dance thing came on board, it had to be at the perfect BPM. That yeah. You didn't wander. And that filtered through into mainstream recording. Yeah. I have a question for you guys, Tony and, and Chris, because uh, what I felt with Click was that, you know, once everyone was recording to Click, because it was always like, when I started recording, it was always a question, should we have Click or shouldn't we have Click? And everyone knew that it was going to be a vibe or take. 
if you used click, but uh, or if you didn't use click, but then if you used click, then you had more options to do things. Uh, and uh, and and I feel like uh, not only were the drummers capable of playing without click uh, and tight and all that, but also there was you know it was part of the musical language. You know, tracks did speed up, and uh, and they could kind of. Uh, have a bit of a lighter tempo in, uh, in the verses and, and so on. And that was kind of an extra color in music. Once most music was made to click, it kind of has slowly disappeared. I mean, now, like, if you hear something that's not like a dead tight tempo now, quite often you feel like that's untight. Whereas before, if you heard Bernard Purdy and James Jamerson and they played and tempo went a little bit up and down, it was like, it was more flavor. Uh, and and I feel the same happened when autotune eventually came in. You know, in the beginning, autotune was a flavor uh, mm. that sounded, and you could immediately hear it. Now it's hard to hear any modern music where the vocal isn't so incredibly hard tuned that, like, as soon as you hear someone that just sounds a little bit bluesy or have, you know, works totally within the realm of what back 20 years ago would be, you know not only kind of accepted, but kind of maybe used as a, a tool for an amazing blues singer, now doesn't really exist anymore. It kind of, it's just been, uh, you know, like the ears have been tuned to a different yeah. aesthetic altogether. Yeah, yeah. I, some engineers or producers would even auto-tune the blue note that a singer, you know, it, yeah. that's what they want. They want that note. And then the mix comes back and you go, wait, what? What's happened to my ear? And it's been straightened out. <laughs> yeah. It's been perfect, yeah. Can I just say one thing about the click? And when I started to using to use it early uh, in the game, like late 70s, maybe I started using clicks, I noticed that like in a rock track, it kills the groove. And everyone called yeah. it, oh, you're going to use a click? That's the groove. They even called it the groove killer, the click. Yeah. So I did two things. Some drummers were great, but they don't have that you know, rock steady tempo, but they are great anyway. They're f the more flamboyant ones. They get excited and they play a fill and they go into the chorus really early. You know, if you analyze it digitally, you go, oh, that's too early. I would start the click from the intro to the end of the first verse, turn the click off and they would be free. You know, after they really heard the click in their heads for like, in other words, for about the first minute and a half of the song, then I'd cut it and then they'd do free form for the rest of it. And that often saved a lot of trouble like with a group they, the drummer would count off and then 10 seconds later they're playing faster you know so like let's decide what the friggin tempo is and then <laughs> yeah. yeah play to it for a minute and a half the other thing i did was i analyzed that like a chorus might be one bpm faster than a verse so i actually programmed clicks sometimes and i would do the bar before the chorus i would do a gradual tempo increase so even when the drummer was playing to the click, he didn't, it was, you know, I kind of analyzed what the feel of a drummer would be. I anticipated what the feel of a drummer would be. And then also getting back into the next verse, I would program the BPM to go down one, you know, one BPM or maybe a little more to get to go back into the verse and sit there. And it's only through years of organic recording that I understand the process of how drummers think and how musicians feel. This applies mainly to a rock rock track, so yeah. you can even be creative, very very creative with a click. You know, it's uh, it could be a groove killer, but if you use it in the right way, it could make the song sparkle. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think just an interesting point. Um, the, the great thing about, I mean, going against the grain here, but with digital recording, you're not always locked into that grid. You know, as Tony was saying, he would ride a ride a click. But what you could have now is you could have a drummer who's got great feel and great groove, you get a great drum take, and then tempo map his performance. And yeah. then if you've got sequence elements, uh, you know, that are being generated by MIDI or whatever, you know, they can breathe and move with the track. Thanks for listening. To check out this conversation in its entirety, please go to www.visconti-studio.co.uk slash research. Be sure to keep up with all things Tape Op on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. Thank you.